Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Sung, Director of the Peregrine Centre. As we begin this episode, please join me in stopping to consider the land beneath your feet. Let's take a moment together to acknowledge the traditional owners of that land. We pay our deepest respects to their elders of the past, those of the present, and the elders of tomorrow. The Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast is brought to you as part of our Rural Mental Health Partnership with New South Wales Health. Hello and welcome to the Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Sung. I'm a clinical psychologist, family therapist, and the director of the Peregrine Centre. Like every episode in this series, today's topic is based on questions raised by our rural mental health practitioners. Don't forget to keep sending us your questions for future episodes. Today, we are talking about alcohol and other drugs, or AOD, and their relationship to mental health treatment. Our guest is Dr. Susie Hudson, Clinical Advisor at the Centre for Alcohol and Other Drugs at the New South Wales Ministry of Health. She also provides counselling in the community in private practice. Susie, welcome. Uh, Can you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a few highlights of your career so far? Yes, I can. Thanks so much for having me, Rebecca. Uh, So... I really started, I'm a mental health social worker by trade and started a lot of my work in prisons in Western Australia and then in uh, Victoria, um, working a lot with young people as well and really identifying how alcohol and other drugs and mental health played a significant role for those people um, involved in the criminal justice system. Uh, a lot of my work too was in residential treatment in the UK. Uh, and then here in New South Wales, I was the manager of the stimulant treatment program. So dealing specifically with methamphetamine uh, and other stimulant drugs. And more recently, both with NADA, the Network of Alcohol and Other Drugs Agencies, is the peak network for non-government drug and alcohol treatment services, spending a lot of time out in rural, regional and remote areas where A lot of fantastic services are provided. However, we also know there's a real um, dearth of services that people can access and often people having to travel off country in order to access those services. And now with the New South Wales Ministry of Health at the Centre for Alcohol and Other Drugs, I'm sort of advising, I suppose, to to the whole of the centre and to the sector. And interestingly enough, I'll be travelling tomorrow to Dubbo where they'll be launching the uh, suicide prevention for Aboriginal people, uh, and then on to another meeting uh, in Condoblin. So really hoping to ensure that people across rural, regional and remote areas are getting the support that they need in this area. Let's talk about rural New South Wales yeah. and AOD use in rural New South Wales. We know that alcohol misuse is not just a city problem. Mm. Uh, In fact, the evidence says that consumption per capita and alcohol-related harms increase with remoteness. What does that mean exactly? Well, I think it says something about Australian culture first and foremost, which is that we use alcohol in particular for all sorts of socialising, getting together, a reward at the end of a hard day's work, and that's sort of permeated our culture, you know, for centuries. Mm. And so it's true to say that as we go out to more rural and regional areas, the availability of alcohol, so that is alcohol outlets um, and pubs, et cetera, they don't reduce in spite of the a number of people living in towns or more remote areas. Um, so the availability of alcohol, the socialising around alcohol means that uh, it's not uh, a surprise to know that the per person, the majority of people are 
using our cola. They've certainly tried it. Um, and for some people that can become problematic. I think when we have worked in the rural areas, one of the things we've often heard from people is, you know, around here people are tough, they pull their socks up, they get on with life, mm -hmm. they don't really have any choice, uh, they might not have any services to go to. Mm -hmm. Do you think that alcohol plays a part in terms of coping or kind of getting on with it? Absolutely. I think for a lot of people, social isolation, um, not necessarily having anyone to talk to or not having a culture, which has us talking to each other when, when problems arise. Uh, you know, the meeting place is often the pub. We know that for a lot of people, that's the social centre. And so from a very young age, young people are um, exposed to alcohol use of all ranges. It doesn't necessarily mean that everyone will go on to develop a problem with alcohol use, but certainly when problems arise, alcohol can be a very effective way of initially anyway, managing some of those strong emotions. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a depressant drug, it slows things down, it, it impairs, you know, it sort of disengages us a little bit from our emotions at times. Uh, and certainly when people are wanting to feel sort of normal, if you like, we know that alcohol use is very much normalised. So it's a way that's acceptable. In fact, we can often say too that when people express their emotions strongly when having used alcohol, being intoxicated on alcohol, that's sort of almost acceptable as well. Um, so you can start to appreciate how well we're socialised mm. to see alcohol as being um, effective mm. at managing strong emotions. Mm. Who were some of the most vulnerable groups? So I think across the, the country, really, um, some of the most vulnerable groups are young people. Mm -hmm. We know that alcohol use before 18 years of age in fact, the research is coming out now to say that developing brains are probably still developing past 25, particularly mm. in young men. And yet the first time people have usually tried alcohol is probably around the 12, 13-year-old mark. So you can appreciate if there's a lot of access to alcohol and a lot of use, this really does impact um, you know, the development and growth of young people. I mean, alcohol itself is toxic to all major organs in the body. Um, there's no real getting past that. Um, and, and so we know that particularly also with pregnant women or women who are, may become pregnant, mm. alcohol use at any time during the pregnancy, uh, delivery and, and breastfeeding is not advised uh, because of that, because it is so you know, toxic to the body. And then also some cultural groups. So we know that for quite a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, where alcohol has been introduced, uh, it's not always had um, a positive impact. And so um, particularly for people in rural and regional and remote areas where alcohol becomes quite dominant, uh, there can be real, real issues there. What about other drugs other than alcohol? I did read that people in remote and very remote areas are more likely to use cannabis mm -hmm. and are two and a half times more likely to use methamphetamines than people in urban areas. So what are the implications of these findings for our rural mental health practitioners? Yeah, I, I think certainly some drugs have taken a hold in, in certain areas across New South Wales. And it is important, I suppose, for all health practitioners in mental health, whether they're GPs, whoever or wherever people are getting their health support. It's probably likely if someone's reaching out for assistance, particularly around mental health concerns, um, that alcohol and other drugs could be playing a part mm -hmm. in that, either as a way of um, maintaining or coping or responding to distress um, that might be associated with a mental health condition or indeed perhaps use that started off recreationally that may well have escalated over time. 
I think, though, what's really important to think about for mental health practitioners is the stigma that's associated mm. with some of these drugs. And what we know is that some of the campaigns, particularly around methamphetamine, really sought to demonise people who use this drug. Uh, and that really left a lot of um, health people feeling quite undermined in terms of their confidence with providing support, making assumptions about people being violent or um, wanting to hurt health providers. And that's really unhelpful because what we know is the vast majority of people who are using alcohol and other drugs are not necessarily always finding themselves in a problematic situation and certainly are not intending to, to hurt or harm people. However, you know, it must be said that with some drugs, such as methamphetamine and in some cases cannabis, they can impact um, certain parts of the brain, which in, which in turn have people feeling quite paranoid, should I say. And that obviously can lead to people feeling that they are going to be harmed by others. Um, but for mental health practitioners, I suppose it, it just alerts us to the fact that we should be asking in any assessment as part of routine care, we should be exploring alcohol and the drug use. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So as a kind of rural practitioner, mm -hmm. there are obviously some challenges mm -hmm. and one of the really big obvious ones is lack of access to specialist services. Yeah. And I know that means that um, some practitioners who describe themselves more as generalists mm -hmm. end up seeing people who happen to have AOD issues. Mm-hmm. If I'm uh, wondering about that scenario, one of the things that people often ask is, how do I assess for AOD use? You know, imagine I get a referral from a GP, which is your standard depression slash anxiety mm -hmm. referral, and, and there's been no mention of AOD. Mm -hmm. How do I introduce it and how do I start that part of my assessment? So that's a great question, Rebecca, and I think it's really important that we start all start to feel a little more confident to open up these conversations because people do want to talk about their concerns around alcohol and drug use. But once again, by not asking, we can sort of normalise that this isn't an issue. Um, and so what I would really recommend is that we do it for all clients. So we don't sort of pick and choose who we think someone may or may not have an issue or we heard down the shops that so-and-so seen down at the pub getting a bit, um, bit pissed or whatever. I think it's really about saying, let's be standardising how we see people and let's ask everyone. And the way to do that is really to introduce it as saying, you know, all the evidence tells us that people use alcohol and other drugs and they use it for varying reasons. Um, and so I ask every one of the people, you know, every person that comes and sees me about their alcohol and drug use because we know that sometimes um, it can get in the way of achieving the things that we want to achieve mm -hmm. or connecting with the people we want to connect with. So as part of our exploring and asking you questions today, I'm going to ask you a little bit about your alcohol and drug use and also reaffirming for people that, it's part of their health care and unless there are specific risks of harm to self or others, that this is confidential. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's important too, that we're reassuring people that their information is going to be kept private where appropriate and certainly I think too that we're starting to put it in the context of this will help me to support you in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's why we should always be asking every person who comes through the door. Let's say I do ask this person mm -hmm. and they say, yes, I, I, I do use some mm -hmm. alcohol or some drugs. How would I know how much is a problem? How much is too much? 
So what's really helpful in those circumstances is to use a couple of tools um, that by doing it alongside someone, and so, so something like the assist, and we can provide these sort of links to these different tools, or the audit C are very brief tools that explore very specific, when it comes to alcohol, for example, how many standard drinks someone's drinking. Now, standard drinks are a bit of a funny thing because we don't often get served a standard drink. Um, and in fact, a standard drink is a lot less than what people think it is. Mm. And so uh, it's perhaps having some tools alongside so you can actually show someone what a standard drink is, if we're talking about alcohol, that you ask them a few questions about their consumption. So how much are they using mm-hmm. on any particular day? How much in the last seven days, etc. And so we do that as standard for all drugs and alcohol. And just by that process of people telling us what their use or their consumption has been, that can be a bit of a trigger for people to say, oh, mm. I didn't really realise mm-hmm. how much I was drinking. And then you're able to, alongside that, provide them with the guidelines, which talk about no more than four per day and no more than 10 in a week, mm-hmm. uh, standard drinks, that is. And then you've just already opened up a conversation, which is, in no way judgmental, uh, you're just literally asking the questions about consumption. And even that can start people thinking about, hmm, I wonder what impact this has. And then to take a little bit further, you can start to sort of ask them some general questions about um, whether or not they feel like over the last month or so things have escalated at all mm-hmm. or have there been times where they've used more than perhaps they wanted to. Uh, so then you're starting to develop a bit of a, a sense of a pattern and that's happening for the person as you're sitting there with them. Mm -hmm. And then you may take it even one step further, which is to say, you know, anyone around you, have they expressed any concerns Mm -hmm. about your alcohol or drug use? You know, maybe at a party, things have got a bit messy and and afterwards they've said to you, gee, you know, got a bit scary there or you got a bit angry about something that you wouldn't ordinarily get angry Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. or perhaps you missed work because you were were too hungover, Mm -hmm. for example, Mm -hmm. or something that you really... Um, felt was important, like someone's birthday or um, something that you cared about, but it got in the way. Mm. And they're the conversations that you can start to have that help people um, to just explore their experience of alcohol and drug use rather than coming in hard Mm. and making judgments about whether that's a problem or not. So it sounds to me there's some questions about amount or consumption. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. questions about the effects, yes. I suppose. And would there also be questions about the function of it? You mentioned before it's a kind of Absolutely. coping mechanism. Right. Yeah, I think that that whole idea of exploring for someone, what's the role of the alcohol or drug use? Mm. Um, I think that's really central because without acknowledging the positive sides, mm. we're not really getting the full picture. Right. So, for example, yes, it's useful to talk about what the um, impacts or negative impacts have been, but it's also really essential to say, tell me a bit about your cannabis use. Mm. Um, what is it that you enjoy mm. about using cannabis? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you get a lot of information there. You know, well, it helps me unwind, for mm. example, or, you know, when I'm particularly stressed, it's about the only thing that can bring me down. Then you've got an opportunity to say, hey, so... Cannabis is one way of coping with this situation. What might it be like for us to spend some time talking about some other things that we can add to the menu Mm. of coping strategies? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in that way, you're not going straight to the heart of you need to stop this, you need to stop it now, uh, which is often what people expect is going Mm. to happen. Mm -hmm. And I personally find in in the years of counselling that I've been involved with, particularly on drug and alcohol use, if you start to grow 
the other coping strategies, naturally the the use of alcohol and other drugs to cope will start to reduce, particularly indeed if it's become problematic because there are a lot of benefits from being able to manage or to um, reduce uh, the harms associated with alcohol and drug use. There's a, a kind of famous family therapy question, which is, uh, what problems would you face if you were to quit drinking tomorrow? Which is a classic kind of reflexive question. Beautiful. But mm. I think it's a very interesting question, which is, it goes to not just coping, but there's a level of maybe avoidance, mm. or there's, it's a solution of sorts to to some of the problems. And I guess that relates to what you're saying about um, understanding the role it's playing for people. Totally. Because, you know, for a lot of people, it might be about belonging. You know, for a young person, mm. it might be, well, if I stop using cannabis, well, that's it for me in terms of socialising with my friends. Yeah. Like, how do I then interact with them? Mm. Um, for people going to the pub, you know, if that's the one central place, particularly in a smaller town where everybody meets and everybody unwinds, perhaps um, you might meet a partner, mm. um, a future partner at a pub, mm-hmm. um, what what are the alternatives? Mm. And so I think it is a challenge for people to think about different ways of interacting, different ways of feeling confident. Mm. I mean, we talk about methamphetamine for a moment. That is a drug that works very particularly on the body and the and the mind to increase these feelings of um, powerfulness, to feel quite very confident. Mm. Um, and for some people, particularly those who've not felt confident in the past, whether that's um, socially or sexually, this is a drug that's incredibly effective. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we don't often think about is that people are not using this drug to have a bad time. Um, You know, they are using it because it works. Um, And if you have felt in the past not very confident in different circumstances and suddenly you try this drug and you feel better than you've ever felt before... Mm then that's something to work through, isn't it? You know, what, we're going to have to do some work around an alternative or different ways of expressing yourself. It's not going to be as easy as just to stop. Yeah, yeah. Let's say my client mm-hmm. or consumer says to me, um, all these things which are, to me, look like drawbacks of, of the use, and I say, oh, that seems like it's problematic, and they say, no, there's no problem here. I'm absolutely fine. I don't want to talk about it. How might you approach that? So I think with those situations, there's a reason they've come to see you. There's a reason they're they're with you today. Now, with alcohol and other drug use, and sometimes with mental health um, and the combination, it's often external circumstances Mm -hmm. or or people, Mm -hmm. Um, people that they care about, that care about them, who have said, you need to see someone, Mm -hmm. or you need to talk about this, or you need to do something about this. Sometimes it's gone even further down the line where people have said, you know, you need to leave the house or you can't stay here anymore. Um, And so sometimes it's worth working with those circumstances. So instead of saying, you know, just accepting that that person doesn't feel that their alcohol and drug use is problematic um, and saying, "Mm, yeah, but you're sort of in this situation where you now, did you say that you no longer are able to stay with your parents or with your partner? So how do you feel about that? And so starting to explore that side of things and what would it look like, you know, to, to reach a compromise around that? What, what do you think you could do that might support you to reestablish that relationship? What's going on there? Because once again, like with a lot of mental health, social issues, if we start to look at what the actual core problem is and address some of that, the other things that exacerbate that scenario start to 
dissipate mm. or to reduce. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Certainly one of the most important things to remember is to, as they say in motivational interviewing, roll with the resistance. So that means not bringing, not sort of taking it on head on mm-hmm. and trying to convince mm-hmm. the person that this is a problem mm. because by doing that you are further sort of cementing their positioning yeah. in this counselling relationship uh, which means that you're, you're you're less and less likely to get into traction, and in most cases, people won't come back. Yeah, I know that's one of the things that people worry about. You mm. know, oh, oh, I don't really know how to work with AOD. Mm-hmm. I think people are not going to come back. What are some of the other things you think practitioners feel nervous about in taking on a client with AOD issues? I think, like a lot of therapy, we feel like we need to have the answers, mm. and alcohol and drug. Uh, use and and therapy is is no different, and so what that means is we just step back from that expert positioning. We don't need to have the answers; they're the expert, particularly on their own use. And there's nothing wrong with having um, curiosity about that and mm-hmm. saying, "Tell me a bit about what that experience is like for you," because mm-hmm. you get a lot of rich narrative around what the role of this drug is to this person, how they interact with it, what needs it's fulfilling, all of that. And so I think showing a genuine interest and understanding of that is useful. Certainly also, I suppose, building on that that therapeutic alliance, that's that's really where you need to come back to. If you feel like you're getting a lot of resistance and some agitation, it's just stepping away from that and really coming back to, you know, how can I help you today? What is it that brings you here today? But it's, I suppose it's really important that all mental health practitioners don't feel like they need to be experts in drug and alcohol. Sometimes the other thing that's really useful, particularly say with something like methamphetamine, is exploring together what the effect of methamphetamine is on the body and the brain. Mm. Like some of the videos that you can find that take you through how the drug actually works mm-hmm. are quite fascinating to clients. Mm-hmm. They often don't understand why do I then start to become paranoid, what's that about, talking them through that fight or flight response, you know, stuff that we would do in mental health, yeah. or, you know, all the time. These are really effective ways of helping someone understand why the drug works in the way that it does, perhaps why they're attracted to the effects of that drug. And so bringing it away from the judgment and into the information can be a way of of really solidifying that engagement. How do you manage it if somebody turns up for a session and they're intoxicated, Mm -hmm. they're clearly not ready for work that day? Mm -hmm. How do you manage that? So that does definitely happen. Um, Sometimes it's difficult to ascertain where the person's at in terms of their intoxication. Certainly what the way I would set things up is to sort of say, you know, I sort of frame it more in, you know, being well, well enough today. Um, so it might not be – because we what we know too is if someone is not well as a result of other conditions, whether mm. it's their diabetes or whether it's um, a mental health consideration, we might, you know, look at doing a few things that are very much around harm reduction or harm minimisation. You know, are you safe? How will you be getting home from here today? What we might do is keep things short today, mm-hmm. but let's, I'll check in with you. You know, sometimes the use of technology is useful. So being able to check in on them via text, if that's appropriate, or if you have other ways of um, checking up with people, or um, if in earlier sessions they've identified support people, it's asking them, you know, hey, how are you getting home? Would, would we, shall we ring, you know, that support person and just see if they can come pick you up today so you can get a bit of rest, look after yourself. Certainly with a lot of clients that I work with uh, who might have had a bit of a three or four day 
bender on, on methamphetamine. They've been up for many, many days. That's often more of the issue than being intoxicated on the drug itself. Mm. Um, it's about saying, let's talk through some harm reduction strategies. Let's get you home, you know, some, some something easy to consume in your tummy, you know, some a smoothie or something. Have you got something like that? And what I really recommend for all mental health practitioners is ensuring that people leave with some harm reduction strategies. So that's stepping away from the judgment about the use, but ensuring that people are as safe. If they are going to, the safest way to use is not to use, mm-hmm. but if you are going to use, think about how you might reduce the harms. Okay. Having a small amount first or ensuring you're with someone you care about or you're safe. Mm-hmm. Being in a, in a place that you feel safe and, and you're not going to be interrupted or, or the, the, you know, the children are not around mm. or they're being taken care of. All of these harm reduction strategies are very important because even someone's best efforts not to use or to reduce their use, if that is indeed their goal, can be interrupted by other things that are going on. Mm. So it's always useful to think about that. You've kind of talked a little bit about risk there, mm. you know, the idea about reducing the risk. How do you manage risk? Because I'd imagine that is one thing that people might be nervous about, particularly if you see parents, for instance, are are these parents okay? Or if somebody, I don't know, is a pilot or is going to drive heavy machinery. Yes. uh, And you know that's probably a high risk. How do you manage those sorts of things? So I think that's a really good point and and absolutely is something that can make us very nervous because we now have that knowledge and you can't unknow what Mm -hmm. you know. Um, I think the first thing to say about parents is that there's just um, at times we're not the best parents that we could be and that just because someone uses alcohol and other drugs does not make them a bad parent. Mm -hmm. They're not, they don't equate with each other. In fact, a lot of people who do use alcohol and other drugs do it in in ways that ensure that their children are safe. Um, Usually perhaps enlisting friends or grandparents to look after the children when they are using it in the period shortly afterwards. Uh, But certainly, you know, we need to take our responsibilities as someone who's providing treatment very seriously. And that is to say that if there are serious concerns, that we've really alerted the people that we're working alongside of what the actions we would take. And certainly with clients of mine, I've always been very upfront and honest about that and that nothing would be a surprise, that they would know that if I was concerned. I think people, particularly therapists, can be very nervous about this. Mm. But in actual fact, people respect the fact that you are consistent in your messaging, that you would ask about the safety of their children. And so what I've found in the past in terms of providing supervision to therapists or or people providing counselling is that not asking the question about the children is more of a concern than than not. Mm -hmm. And so putting that out there and showing an interest is actually useful for the person. Um, So... In terms of other risks, I think it's useful to be, once again, upfront and transparent. You know, I think people wouldn't be surprised if they were driving, say, heavy trucks and long distances that you might ask questions about, you know, what impact, you know, what what are the timeframes in terms of their use and then their their work mm. um, because it has implications. You know, nobody wants to hurt somebody as a result of their own use uh, and so it's, I suppose not being afraid to have some of those conversations. One of the other things I imagine might come up is, you know, my client says, yes, I'm reducing or I'm drinking less. And it's very obvious to me they're not. 
Uh, and that feeling of not trusting their report, them mm-hmm. being unreliable, mm-hmm. and and I guess the feeling that I I feel a bit hurt by that, mm-hmm. you know, that they sure. say things to me that are not correct and, and I feel uh, I can either kind of follow along with that and feel a bit foolish or I can confront them on that and be threatened with a bit of a rupture in the relationship. How do you manage that? Talking head on about calling someone out on whether they are using it or not is a bit dangerous Mm -hmm. um, because if we get it wrong, as you say, you may find that that the things are completely irreparable. Mm. However, I think sometimes it's more useful to talk about if you suspect that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, telling you what you want to hear. Yeah. Very early on, I think it's really important to um, set up a relationship in which you are telling people quite explicitly that in order to get the work done and to do this work together, we need to be as honest as we can with mm-hmm. each other mm-hmm. and that they won't hurt, hurt, hurt your feelings mm-hmm. um, and that there's no judgment here. So um, you can be as honest as you like and that helps us to do the work that we need to do because right. having half the information, as we know in any circumstance, doesn't help us to address anything. So I think it's in the first instance, it's setting up a relationship in which you can be honest. I think also another way of, of instilling that honesty or that good rapport is around saying that, you know, at the end, end of every session, you're going to ask them about how it was for them. How did it go for mm, them? Mm-hmm. Did you get it right? Mm. Um, did they feel heard? And in that way, you're also setting up this relationship that's about I'm watching myself. I'm thinking about what I'm doing in this in this um, interaction with you, and so I would expect the same coming from you. So you're starting to automatically set up a bit of a, a strong sense of trust. And then if you do suspect that, in fact, they're coming and telling you, you know, what you want to hear in terms of reduction, you'll often see it bleeding out in other areas. Mm. So although they're telling you they're not drinking anymore, things are escalating at home, they've got another DUI, you know. So I think it's more about then focusing on the impacts. So, you know, you're telling me that you're starting to reduce. How's that playing out in terms of your day-to-day? What does that look like? Um, Another way is to really sit down and do what's called a follow-back timeline. So you're really sitting down with them and getting down to the nitty-gritty of how much mm-hmm. they're using. And you're doing it as an external sort of exercise, so it's less personal. Yeah, right. You know, it becomes a less a thing about you're being dishonest and a lot more about, hey, let's talk about what's really happening here and how I can support you in that way. Yeah. So I see a bit of a theme about non-judgment, mm, you know, really trying absolutely. to sit back on that. Mm-hmm. Let's talk specifically about certain drugs. Mm-hmm. Methamphetamines is your area. Mm. That's not a sentence I thought I'd say every day, but methamphetamines (laughs) is is your area of interest. It is indeed. Um, What are some of the aspects of methamphetamine use that you feel are widely misunderstood? Yeah, I think think the key one is that everybody's violent Mm. on this drug. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's certainly not my experience, which is not to minimise the experiences of those who, who have experienced that. But it's understanding that um, the way in which methamphetamine works has the potential for people to be very, very frightened. Mm. And so you can appreciate that if you feel very threatened and in a situation where your um, your paranoia goes to persecutory thoughts, so i.e. this person is trying to hurt me or mm. kill me, mm. uh, and then you put them under bright lights in an emergency department with five security guards and ten policemen, mm. you know this is only going one way. Mm-hmm. It's escalating. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, you know, emergency departments are often not the best place for people who are experiencing, having these experiences. And those working in mental health know this very well. 
because um, psychosis is not um, just a, a methamphetamine-related thing. Mm-hmm. The other thing about methamphetamine is that, in my experience, those who have had significant psychotic responses, uh, even if they take a break from the drug, if they use again, they often it becomes a bit of a well-worn path in a way, mm-hmm. uh, and so they it's highly likely that they again will experience these mm-hmm. quite strong psychotic experiences. But that's not the same for all people. A lot of people use this drug intermittently throughout the year, maybe four or five times a year. Mm-hmm. On a particular occasion, they take time off for that occasion. It certainly facilitates um, for some people sexual interaction uh, and pleasure. And so in those circumstances, you know, you're not seeing these sort of widely circulated images of people, you know, falling into, you know, losing heaps of weight, becoming very unwell. That said, it certainly can be a very, you know, it's a very powerful drug Mm. and therefore you can appreciate how um, building a dependence and a tolerance for it can happen for people. Uh, And certainly if you're quite unhappy and there are other things going on in your life, it it is one of those drugs that certainly passes the time. Mm. Time just runs away from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're not happy, uh, that's quite um, attractive. Yeah, sure. And if you've had experiences particularly of trauma or um, of feeling routinely powerless, this is a drug that can make you feel very powerful. Mm-hmm. And so once again, you can see the attraction for some people and the resistance to, to stopping using. The other difficulty with this drug in particular is that, you know, you will be up for several, or you can be up for several days. We know that sleep deprivation can be used as a form of torture. So (laughs) people who are sleep deprived are in not a good state. And so that that exacerbates or can precipitate people wanting to use more to feel okay because they feel not good, you know, in those moments. Mm -hmm. And because it's working on depleting uh, dopamine and serotonin, you're going to be extremely flat. Mm. And so it is true for people that on that come down, they can experience very strong feelings of um, of sadness and despair. And so that's quite a, can be a risky time for people too. So really being in a place where they feel safe and comfortable, where they can get some sleep is really important for some people. Yeah. So something worth talking about with a client about that whole trajectory of experience. So when they're using, um, you know, some of the, if they're engaging in sexual activity that you're talking to them about STIs or, you know, sexual protection, also just protection in terms of who they might be with. And then all the way through to, you know, will they be able to find a safe place to get some rest, Mm. nutrition, you know, all that sort of thing as well. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about another drug, cannabis. Mm-hmm. We've seen recently it's been made legal in several states in the US. It's decriminalised in some places. Should we even be worried about people using cannabis anymore? Look, I think with any drug um, and alcohol, they all have harms. I mean, I think no one would be saying, you know, whilst on one hand cannabis can be very effective for things like um, pain relief and and even people are starting to use it in relation to PTSD, where we're starting to look at psychedelic-assisted therapies mm-hmm. um, um, with psilocybin and, and LSD and MDMA, for example. But I don't think we should ever, I don't think anyone who works in the business or related fields would ever say there's no harms associated. Um, There's always harms associated with alcohol and drug use. And so it's about how do we ensure that we reduce those harms as much as possible. And that's where good education, factual education comes in. 
And if we're talking about cannabis, I think that what we see is that if it's used, if we're talking about prescribed cannabis, Mm -hmm. if it's used as prescribed, like any other medication, within the context of a full life, Mm. so where, you know, exercise is happening and positive energy is being put into relationships and meaningful, purposeful activity and all of that, then um, absolutely, like anything, we would see the the harms greatly, greatly reduced. Mm -hmm. But for those for whom the substance has become really you know, everything else has been narrowed mm. to the point where the drug, it's basically the, that person and the drug use, mm. you know, like with anything, you know, with work, if we're going to working, to, you know, uh, you know, 80 hour weeks with no breaks and no other activities, you know, it will start to have an impact on our mental health mm. and our overall wellbeing and, mm-hmm. and drugs are no different in that mm. regard. Mm-hmm. But I think it's well worth understanding that the difference, say, between alcohol and cannabis is that alcohol itself is toxic to mm. every major organ, whereas cannabis, depending on how you're taking it, it's not the same as, as that. Same with heroin. You know, the reality is over time any opiate that you take, you know, your your body will adjust and you, you know, dependence will form that you need that drug to feel normal, to feel okay. Um, and that, that happens, which is why we see some of these issues with people being prescribed opioids over long periods of time. But as long as that person gets that drug, they will be, they will feel okay, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that their body is not adjusted and they haven't built a tolerance and dependence on that drug. So it's well worth understanding how the drug works as part of your un, your education, educating yourself, but also asking and checking with that person what's that experience for them. Right. And I think that gives you a signal or some messages about how this drug is being used and whether it's becoming problematic or mm. not. You mentioned at the top of the episode mm. some vulnerable communities. Mm. You mentioned younger people, mm. Aboriginal communities. Uh, we know that the rates of misuse in men mm. are higher. What's the latest thinking about actually engaging men in help? We know they're notorious for not asking for help when yes. they <laughs> and not wanting to talk about their feelings. How, how are we going about engaging men? Look, I think that's a really good point. I think particularly we know in rural and regional areas there are there's still significant amounts of suicide, which tells us that people are not reaching out for help. Um, one of the key issues with alcohol and other drugs, because of the stigma, it means that people leave it a long time before they reach out for assistance, particularly for men and alcohol. Um, and in some cases, methamphetamine too, we know that, you know, the longer people use at risky levels, it will start to impair their cognitive function, their, their brain function, mm-hmm. similarly with alcohol. And so I think in order to engage men, we need to be thinking about targeting younger and younger men. So as they're growing up, which means we need factual information getting to the right places, which is to say, you know, there'll be a whole cohort of of young people who won't use alcohol or other drugs. There will be a cohort who try some drugs but then go on to not be that interested mm-hmm. um, because they've just got other things to do with their time. And then there will be a smaller group that develop a problematic or a concerning use of, of a drug or alcohol. But I think with men it's about weaving these things into routine care that it's not demonised or stigmatised, mm-hmm. that we start to say to our communities, did you know there's a whole breadth of treatment available? Mm-hmm. Yes, even in rural and regional areas and remote areas, they may be um, not as plentiful, but certainly not every person needs to go to residential rehabilitation, for example. Right. It's extremely effective for those who need it, mm-hmm. but you know, people 
say if you're the mental health practitioner in a remote area, you've got a good relationship with a person in the community and then through the course of your support of them, drug and alcohol use comes up as an issue, Mm -hmm. I really recommend reach out to someone who does work in drug and alcohol. They might not be in your town or, or your region, but there are people out there who'd be more than happy to support you to support that person. Mm -hmm. Don't feel necessarily that they need to now be referred to a drug and alcohol person. Yeah, so I think it's those sorts of engagements. It's through personal relationships. Um, I think the other things that have worked quite well in communities has been, you know, elders or figures within the community speaking out Mm -hmm. about, hey, sometimes people use alcohol and drugs, sometimes it becomes a problem. If it does for you, reach out early. You know, lots more can be done Mm. at that time. Yeah. I know one of the research projects we have supported this year through our small grants projects is Smart Recovery and mm-hmm. Smart Recovery Groups. Yes. Uh, do you want to tell people a little bit about those? I sure can. Yeah, no, excellent. Um, so we know that group work in and of itself is very useful therapeutically. For a long time, historically, the main emphasis in drug and alcohol was on what's called 12-step groups. Mm-hmm. So this is people will know this as AA or NA groups, and they're still very prolific across the state. Uh, and very effective for people. Uh, however, smart recovery came along as a bit of an alternative, as, a, as another option or choice for people, and it's very firmly built on cognitive behavioural therapy approaches, so CBT approaches, which a lot of your uh, listeners I'm sure will be familiar with, uh, and so certainly doesn't look to abstinence being the key goal, whereas AA and NA is very much about abstinence, so not using any um, alcohol or other drug. So smart recovery came along and is widely available. And in fact, an app was recently developed, I believe, by the team, um, which has people being able to monitor their use and and get sort of tips and strategies sent to them, depending on where they're they're travelling, how they're going. So that could be quite useful in regional areas. But smart recovery groups, again, really work on the principle that that people are supporting each other, Mm -hmm. that they're normalising these experiences, they're wanting to do something about their alcohol and other drug use, whether that's reduce or or stop completely, and this sense of working through and problem solving, um, strategising for reducing or, or dealing with cravings, for example, or relapse prevention strategies, so that is the things that we can do when we start to feel like we'd like to use again. Um, And so, yeah, these are quite widely available both online uh, and you, if you have a bit of a critical mass, so say you had a few people in the community who were interested, then I know that through um, Smart Recovery they can provide you the tools to start up a group of your own. Mm. Yeah. And certainly I think they're currently also looking at and have been piloting and developing um, specifically oriented Aboriginal mm-hmm. um, smart recovery mm-hmm. groups as well. My understanding of the groups is that you can talk about your alcohol mm-hmm. use, for instance, but it really it could be any problematic totally. behaviour. Yeah. And that kind of brings us to this crossover between kind of mental health, mm. in inverted commas, and alcohol and mm. other drug treatment. Where do you see that overlap? So, look, I think it would be fair to say that most people, the majority of people reaching out for alcohol and other drug treatment have a mental health issue or, or, or are concerned about their mental health uh, at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so we, in the AOD field, I suppose, we sort of work from the principle that it's universal, that people will be experiencing some mental ill health as a, either a direct result of their drug and alcohol use or in addition to. 
Um, and so the good news uh, for both mental health and drug and alcohol practitioners is there's been a lot of work done and there's so many crossovers between the approach to therapy for mental health issues as there is for drug and alcohol. And so I would be trying really hard not to necessarily separate those because what the research would tell us is that it's not a case of let's deal, stop drinking first, then I'll deal with your mental health issue. Mm-hmm. In fact, we should be dealing with these things at the same time. Right. You know, for far too long, I think we've tried to compartmentalise people and split them down the middle and say, well, you, well, I can't really help you and I can't do a proper assessment until you stop using. Well, let's just assume that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, because these two things are working side by side. Right. So some of the really fantastic resources that you can go and check out um, uh, produced by the, through the Matilda Centre and lots of experts out in the field is a whole website um, and guideline for co-occurring issues, mental health and drug and alcohol. And it takes you through all the um, all the strategies, all the evidence-based practice. There's e-learning modules. It's just excellent. And it really helps to see the synthesis or the, the, the how well these things come together, you mm. know, in, in mm. treatment. Mm. Are there other resources you would particularly recommend? Yes, there's some great things out there. So there's the New South Wales Health Your Room website. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This has got lots of information um, on specific drugs. It's got services where you can find different services in your area. So it sort of helps with that. It's got a whole section around families and working with families or concerned others. So often we find it might not be the person who's using alcohol and other drugs, but indeed someone that cares for them. Yeah. Um, in those cases, we recommend really strongly that the, the caring person or the support person or significant other reach out for help first and foremost. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of services there on that. The Alcohol and Drug Foundation um, also has... Uh, lots of things on different drugs, recent research, specific areas on rural and regional supports. Uh, and then I think the other one that I was thinking about is online. There's an organisation called Insight in Queensland and there are some a whole raft of free uh, webinars on motivational interviewing, on relapse prevention, on cognitive behavioural therapy, all around alcohol and other drug use. So excellent resources that anyone can access for free. I think that might be all we have time for, unfortunately, because that has been a really helpful episode, I think. There's a lot that we've covered, Mm. but I think a lot of it was very accessible for people. If somebody's out there just being a generalist, I shouldn't say just being a generalist, generalist is very hard to be, but they're having to manage all sorts of things that are walking through the door. I think Mm. there was a lot in there for them. That's really great. So thank you so much, Susie, for being our guest today. You're very welcome. And thank you to everybody who's been listening. I've been your host, Rebecca Sung, and this has been another episode of the Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast. I hope you found today's episode helpful. You'll find specially selected resources on this topic on our digital learning platform. To join the platform for free or to suggest questions or topics for further episodes, please visit our website, theperegrinecentre.com.au.